Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, Nick and I talk to Dr. Sarah Kubrick. She is an existential psychotherapist, consultant, writer, and columnist for USA Today. She recently wrote her debut book, It's On Me, Accept Hard Truths, Discover Yourself, and Change Your Life. The book is a guide to identifying self-loss, that feeling of being estranged or disconnected from your true self, so we can stop feeling the pain and emptiness that comes from performing or observing life rather than living it. Sarah is a trauma-informed clinician with a person-centered approach that is grounded in existential analysis, as well as somatic and experiential techniques, and she specializes in moral trauma, identity, existential crisis, and relationship issues. Nick, what did you enjoy most about our conversation with Sarah? She's wildly knowledgeable, easy to talk to, and what I really liked about this one is everything she brought to the table from this existential lens, I think, confirmed some themes that we've been hearing throughout our episodes, and we dug into a little bit more with a slightly different kind of perspective on it. But she also really, I think, expanded how you think about flourishing in terms of alignment and coherence and the sense of self, right? And this idea of responsibility and accountability and and the way we're involved in sort of structuring and creating not just our lives, but our sense of self as well. Not that it's absent, you know, from kind of the the environmental or ecosystemic factors at play, but we, you know, coming from a standpoint that we have a lot more control and we need to kind of stand behind, as she would say, of the decisions that we're making and do them intentionally. So I thought it was different than a lot of the conversations we've had in a a really positive way. And we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Sarah Kubrick. Sarah, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. It's great to have you on our podcast today. So you are an existential psychotherapist. And before we dive in to discuss your specific areas of expertise and your recently published book. Let's start with this. What is existential psychotherapy and what does an existential psychotherapist do? I often get the question of how would you compare existential psychotherapy to normal psychotherapy? And the answer (laughs) is there is no normal psychotherapy. Every psychotherapist works from a particular modality, from a particular theory that informs the way that they view the client, the problem, and that they will guide them to their desired goals. So, for example, if you practice from attachment theory, if a client sat in front of you and started to share their narrative, you'd probably pick out their attachment. And that would be the starting conceptualization of the client and the problem. This is a generalization, obviously. From an existential psychotherapist point of view, we're sitting there and we're looking at what we would consider universal concepts that are applicable to most humans. And so these concepts are responsibility, meaning, death, isolation. And so it's just that we're looking at different themes as a way to conceptualize. What does an existential psychotherapist do? Hopefully help. You never know, though. No. (laughs) A lot of our work is helping the clients navigate the anxieties of facing their truth, of facing their suffering, and then helping to empower them to take responsibility and make decisions that align with them, helping them show up in the world in a way that feels authentic and true and something they can stand behind. Awesome. Thank you. So clearly that connects with various areas of existential philosophy and existentialism. We may dig into that later. Probably should have said that, yes. <laughs> it is rooted in existential philosophy, correct. Well, we, we may well dive into that later for sure. Themes like freedom, responsibility, and so on. But let's also go into your specialism. So you specialize in moral trauma, identity, 
existential crisis and relationship issues. So what's working as an existential psychotherapist specializing in these areas taught you about human psychology and perhaps also human flourishing? It's taught me that humanity is complex. It's also taught me that we will do the most interesting things as a way to preserve and protect ourselves. And we won't even realize it. So for example, my doctoral study was on moral injury, particularly in perpetrators of infidelity. So what is the moral trauma inflicted on those who have cheated on their partner? And it's so fascinating to see that a lot of these narratives, and I used hermeneutic phenomenology as my methodology, was that a lot of it was a way to reconnect to their sense of self. Now, if you just looked at that behavior when they cheated on their wife, they're a terrible human being, there's nothing that justifies this, you would have missed out (laughs) on the complexity of humanity, which is we do a lot of things as a way to preserve the sense of self. That's why I wrote the book on self-loss, without even realizing that that's what we're trying to protect, because it's one of the most precious things that we have. And so there's so many endless examples of this. And so A lot of us may lack self-awareness, but what I'm realizing is that everything that we do has a purpose and we just need to figure out what we're trying to accomplish and then maybe pivot a little bit to do it in a way that's healthy for us. So that's something that I notice over and over and over again. The human mind is fascinating and powerful. You can convince yourself of anything you want to convince yourself of. What a tool. (laughs) And I just think, again, it's knowing how to use that tool rather than misuse it. That's a good place to go, right? Because sense of self stands out to me. I want to better understand that. You also just kind of mentioned, you know, you can kind of convince yourself of a lot of different things. So I hear both of those and I kind of put them side by side and say, okay, well, how do you know if your quote unquote sense of self is right? We've had similar conversations about intuition or or concepts that have some empiricism, but for the common person might feel a little abstract. Like, I think I hear coherence and like psychology language, right? I think I hear aligned (laughs) values, but can you just tease apart that sense of self for us a little bit more? What I find fascinating is that I don't think there's right and wrong sense of self. This is where it gets really complex and uncomfortable for individuals. I think what it is, it's deliberate decisions that you're going to stand behind and that will, at that time, hopefully align with you. Cohesion congruency are the words that come to mind. Now, there's that example of a student coming to Sartre and being like, should I go to war or should I take care of my mother? If I go to war, I am a small part in a big picture. And if I stay with my mom, I'm playing a very small global part, but I am contributing so significantly to her. And what Sartre essentially said was, there is no right answer. The answer you choose is the right answer. And I think people get so bogged down with doing the right and the wrong. It's almost like life is a pass-fail rather than realizing that that which aligns and that which you choose and can stand behind and that that's deliberate, that is the right choice for you. Maybe not a universally right choice, but that's not what you're trying to make. And so I look at the sense of self as having three ingredients, which is so dry and existential, but it's freedom, choice, and responsibility. And so when you put those two together, that's how you create the sense of self. I do think the sense of self is a felt experience. 
but I don't think the sense of self is something we find. So that's essentialism, not existentialism. And a lot of the narratives in psychology are like, well, go and find your authentic self. You left it somewhere. <laughs> it's, it's somewhere there. It's completely constructed, apparently, but you just don't have access to it. And that's something that I push back on because I don't think that that's your authentic self has to be created. It has to be the expression of yourself. Otherwise, it just doesn't exist. And you would have to believe that someone has created it for you, given it to you, and now you can either accept it or not. And so the sense of self, I think, as a concept, is probably one of the most complex in trying to describe, especially when you start to differentiate it from authenticity and all this other stuff. And so this is a little taste. Yeah, we want to dig into lots of these areas, a lot to, to bite on there. So let's go into this further because your book is about self-loss, but in order to lose a self, you need to figure out where the self is that's gone to begin with, right? Or has been lost. So you hold that we create the self, but nonetheless, the created self is based on some true self that's there already, the sense of self you have. Can you describe how a self is formed? And then we can come on to how the self is lost and then get us onto your book. And maybe let's flip those around because I think it might help as an introduction. So when I use the word self-loss, I use it just because that's a term that philosophers have used, that existential psychology has used. It's the closest to the phenomenon that I'm trying to explain. You can never have formed yourself. So when I say you're lost, some have created their sense of self and then lost it. We can talk about how that happens. And some have never formed their sense of self. And so I would be in that category of like when I was in my <laughs> early 20s, realizing I don't know who I am, but then realizing I never did. It's very different than someone who knew who they were and then went through a life transition or a traumatic event and then no longer knew who they were post this event. And so that I think is an important thing of you don't have to have known who you were to consider yourself lost. I know that that term. Okay. No, that's helpful though. Yeah, it's a little misleading because you're like, then you must have, you know, and then also it's misleading because you're like, then I find it because <laughs> it's everyone's like, for the title of the book. They were like, it should be lost and found. And I was like, I can't do that. That's theoretically incorrect. But I like the I like the ring to it. I don't know what the other part of your question was. You'll have to repeat that. So I was just trying to tease out the role that a human being has in creating their own sense of self. I mean, we perhaps shouldn't go too deep on philosophy of the self because it's a massive debate, right? But no, um, yeah, <laughs> whether, there, whether there's some permanent persisting self, whether it transcends your life, let's not maybe go that far, but at least let's get a, a firm grip on your account of what the self is so we can then understand what it is to lose yourself and get into the central themes of your book. So a human being might never have a clear sense of self because they haven't yet discovered maybe their character or something but a human being can also create a sense of self that can be lost. So how does that creating process happen? So it doesn't happen in isolation. I think that's a really important thing that I want to touch on, but I think it's about just being really deliberate. I think the self becomes through expression. What I mean by that is you can't just think your way into becoming yourself. The way that you act, that's how it becomes the self. That's how you get feedback. And that's where some of the misalignment occurs as well. It's kind of like the world is your mirror. It reflects back to you who you are. And so you can't go in a cave, do nothing, and then be like, I have found myself. It happens in the real world. Yourself is in the real world. And the real world is part of yourself. And so 
I think it's through very deliberate actions and decisions and taking responsibility and using our freedom that we do this. You get to mold whoever you want to be from the tiniest decisions you make every day of drinking coffee, not drinking coffee, to the big decisions of what you're going to study, if you're going to get married, whatever roles you take on or don't take on. Now, I also am not under the impression that society does not shape your sense of self. I don't think we're free from society to just determine who we are. I think the power that we have and the power and the freedom that remains is choosing who's closest to you because you know you're going to be shaped and molded by the people around you. And all you can do is choose who those people are. So that's how I consider the self. It's like taking responsibility and being really painfully deliberate about each thing that you do and choose to do and checking in to see if that's in alignment. I always want to say alliance, alignment. alignment <laughs> if it's in alignment, and if it's a decision that you can stand behind, does that help? I was like, there's so many ways to go here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I like your use of the phrase stand behind because it implies that like a lot of the decisions you make might be unpleasant. It's not like alignment is, even though I think it's a good thing as far as we're all concerned and, you know, well-being, satisfaction, all that sort of stuff. Like it doesn't necessarily mean the visceral experience of that alignment is a pleasant thing. It could be very unpleasant. You might have to like stand in the fire a bit, so to speak. And I think that's an interesting connection to some of the things you outlined earlier, death, meaning, responsibility, empowerment, relationship building, and, and maybe that's our bridge. But am I, am I understanding it right so far? Absolutely. I love that you picked up on that. I think a lot of existence is uncomfortable. <laughs> and then some of it is actually painful. And I think as long as we avoid that, we avoid ourselves and reality. So I do think it's really important. I also like that phrase of stand behind, which is something my mentor always used to say, because that means even when you make a mistake, you don't disown yourself. You can stand behind your decision and be like, wow, okay, that wasn't a good call and that's okay. But I'm going to stand behind myself at least, maybe not the decision, but I'm going to stand behind myself. And I think there's something so wonderful about that self-trust piece and that self-respect piece and that I will have my own back piece that I think is so important in a world and an existence where sometimes we can feel incredibly isolated and alone. So I think that relationship to self is incredibly important for our well-being. Sounds like a lot of, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of similar principles is how I've come to understand like acceptance commitment. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of that. I feel like every theory in psychology sure. use different terms. <laughs> yeah, that's, yes, that's fair. <laughs> and that's there's so fair. much overlap. <laughs> And maybe I'll not a hot people won't like that I said that. And of course, there's unique things about each modality, but so much, I mean, it's human existence. There's so much overlap. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm understanding it correctly, and please correct me if I'm not, as we move into connections to some of the things you spend a lot of time focusing on, so trauma, existential crises, relationship issues, you mentioned moral injury. Is it fair to say that a lot of your work is some sort of, let's call it trauma, but I still would love for you to kind of define how you use that word. It gets thrown around, I think, a lot. I just want to know how you use it, right? But is it some sort of trauma that creates a reverberation or an impact on that sense of self? And then you're exploring terms like meaning, death, responsibility, empowerment to try to bring it back? Yeah, I used to call myself a trauma specialist, and then I just stopped. 
How come? Because of the way that the term is being used right now. And because I think the types of things I became more passionate about and ended up specializing more in in my doctoral studies, sometimes I want to say life is just a lot of traumatic events. That's what it is. Because life just has a lot of things you could not foresee, a lot of things that hurt you, a lot of things that impact you. And so then saying that absolutely everything is trauma, sometimes I find disempowering. Because there's a really strong narrative that if a traumatic thing happened to you, you didn't have any power or participation. And I think that there's a lot of events that could be categorized as traumatic where you also perpetrated or participated. And so I think I really like the nuance of that. And so when I'm working with clients, yes, some of them have lived through some traumatic things and some of them haven't. But what I'm interested in is how did you inflict your own pain? If we were to summarize relationship issues, identity issues, moral trauma, the angle I look at it, and there's so many ways you can look at all of them. But what I'm most curious in is what was individuals who understand their own participation? Because I think that requires a lot more forgiveness. And sometimes it's a lot more complex because you weren't just a victim, for example. And how do you conceptualize the fact that you were the reason that you're suffering right now? That's a really difficult thing. Could you give us an example? This is interesting. It's a very interesting thread, like a little case scenario. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I keep going back to infidelity. Okay. Individuals who almost became suicidal after they cheated on their partner. That's an interesting one because technically, according to society, what are they complaining about? They're the perpetrator. The other person's the victim. They inflicted the trauma. No one looked at their own trauma. No one looked at the impact of their actions on them. And so the fact that they were abusing alcohol or close to committing suicide or really struggling to get out of bed, those things were missed. And people thought that that was a fair consequence. And so how do you, for me, it's so fascinating of like, How do you honor the self? You don't have to accept the action, but how do you still accept the person? And how can they separate the two? And how can they find their sense of self after something like that? And so, not find, create. (laughs) See, I did it. (laughs) (laughs) My God. So that's kind of what I find incredibly interesting when it comes to the thread. Now that you're asking me in all of these things that I specialize in, it's like when it gets really messy. That's what I really, really like when it's not so black and white, when it's super, super gray of like, I so get why you cheated. Like, I so get it. It's not a justification, but I so get it. And so to me, that's the fascinating because I think a lot of people are in the gray. A lot of our lives are in the gray. And so that's where, where I like to get a bit messy. So there's, you just set us up, sorry to jump in again here, John, but I think a nice bridge because obviously the show's Flourish FM, we, during the pre-meeting a little bit, we're talking about human flourishing, right? Sponsored by the human flourishing program, all those sorts of things. We're interested in flourishing. Is that like the wrong question to ask? Does that not allow for enough gray? (laughs) No, I absolutely think we should flourish. I think we should heal. I think we should grow. I think we should evolve. I think we should experience joy. I'm not that dark and twisty, but (laughs) I do think that flourishing is not going to be a comfortable experience at all times. 
I think a lot of people think of happiness, flourishing growth, and they go, wow, wonderful. I'm going to feel joy while I'm doing these things. That's where I think the misconception is. I think to flourish, sometimes you have to be in the mud. I think you have to face all the shadows and the, you know, the, the difficult things in order to flourish. So I think flourishing is an amazing goal. I just don't think the journey there is always going to be super, super clear cut or super comfortable. You're perhaps going even further on a theme that has come up many times in these episodes, the importance of struggle, the importance of dealing with difficult emotions, difficult experiences in life to flourish. This has come up more than any other theme in our episodes, but with you, it's <laughs> going kind of to the next level. It's not simply dealing with difficult experiences. It's like dealing with the hardest experiences life has to offer and facing up to the full extent of your possible responsibility in these actions. That in fact, it might not have been something that simply happened to you and, and you were a, just the victim, or it was maybe just bad luck that it happened, but rather you actually had a role to play, perhaps a significant role in this event taking place. So what do you see as the role of facing up to yourself? I mean, this gets us to the theme of your book, facing yourselves. You know, this the title of the book is It's On Me, Facing Up to Responsibility. How do you see the role of that in living a good life and perhaps living a flourishing life? Yeah. And just to clarify, I don't think that you need to be seeking out difficult life experiences, nor do I think you should be taking responsibility for what's not yours. Right? Like, I am not suggesting either of those things. But I am suggesting that even if you are 1% responsible, you take responsibility for that. And so for your question, I love my US cover because I don't know if you've seen it. It has something round on it. It's actually a mirror. <laughs> so when you pick up the book, you can see yourself, which I think is so fun and no other translation worldwide has it. It's like that really extra kick of like, it's on you and the you I'm talking about is literally, you can see them. Like that's your face, that's you. Now, I think you can look at this messaging or responsibility in two ways. It can be really harsh. It can be really blaming or it can be incredibly empowering. And so I obviously think it comes from the deepest place of love for my clients when I tell them to take responsibility because taking responsibility saved my life. The reality is no one's going to save you, even if they want to. They just can't. No one can live your life for you. And I think I had this moment where I was in the depth of my self-loss and I experienced my very first panic attack. And I went into pretty much full body paralysis to the point I couldn't speak. And my sister was there and she was looking at me and she was almost in tears. And I know how much my sister loves me. I'm like her favorite person. She, in that moment, would have done anything to help me. And watching her just in horror be completely powerless was a wake-up call for me. Because it's not like if someone loves me enough, they will help me, they will save me. There is a point that we have to admit that no one can help you and save you in certain things. And so that you are alone and that's such a hard, hard truth. And I realized the best thing I can do is take care of myself. And the best way I can take care of myself was actually take responsibility for my life and the things I didn't like in my life and the things that were hurting me. So I think responsibility is a message of hope 
it's a message of hope, at least it was for me. And it's one of empowerment because if you are living a life you don't want, that means you shaped it. Maybe not fully. It's not like I'm saying the wars I survived as a child was my responsibility and I shaped the trauma that ensued after. Absolutely not. But if you have participated in creating your life in a certain way, that means you can use that participation to create a life that you want. It's the same tools. It's just being a little more deliberate. So for me, a responsibility is a life-saving tool, at least it was for me personally. And whenever I see a client take that step from, oh, let's conceptualize. And a lot of people are good at conceptualizing. It's the implementation that's hard. It's that next step. It's like they understand the traumas. They understand their participation. They understand all of these things. But that next step of actually taking responsibility and expressing yourself, creating yourself through expression, that's when it gets really, really difficult. But I think that's the moment of actual liberation for a lot of people. I'm curious about that phrase, creating yourself through or from expression. So I think it's similar to what I was talking about previously in terms of you can't be in a cave and be like, this is who I am. Who you are is how you show up in the world. And I think a lot of existential questions like who am I is not conceptually answered. It's answered through the way you live your life. That's who you are. How else do you answer who am I? Because the second you ask that question, people are giving you their roles, their preferences, their hobbies. Great. It's not inaccurate, but the only totality, the only full comprehensive understanding of who an individual is, is the way that they show up and live their life. That's the true answer to that question. It's not virtue. It's not character. It's not behaviors. It's so it's here how I spend my time or what I'm interested in. It's all of it. (laughs) You know, it's none of it and it's all of it. We love that. Hi, friends. Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most, of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. Okay, let's get a little practical now. Mm-hmm. Your book emphasizes the importance of facing ourselves. So accepting for responsibilities, you've said, for the choices we make and the actions that create our reality and taking ownership for ourselves, this thing that we call ourself, and realizing that it's on us to figure out who we are and why we're here, hence the type of your book. So you give many practical steps, of course, in the book, but what are some of the key steps that we can take to build the skills to face ourselves? So I have two. One is like, 
more of a mindset. I know everything we've spoken about is incredibly serious and heavy, but I think we also can't take life too seriously. I think there has to be some laughter and, and humor. We have to see some humor in the absurdity of life or else it becomes really suffocating. And so, I mean, you'll see, I don't know if you read my book, but I use Julia Roberts as an example. And I'll do this often where I'll talk about Heidegger and then use an example from like pop culture. And that's just to show the spectrum of the human experience and the fact that these are the same thoughts just presented very differently, maybe on different levels or different depths. And so what I love about the Julia Roberts example, which is Runaway Bride. I don't know if the listeners have watched it. If you haven't, you're missing out. I know. it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Great. Yep. Any eighties baby, you know, high school in the nineties, two thousands. Yeah, for sure. We love (laughs) it. Okay. So runaway bride, just a brief overview. So this makes sense, but she's someone who has walked away from her grooms at the altar multiple times and a reporter whose career is crashing needs a really good piece. And he hears about this. So he starts to investigate. So he interviews her and all her previously failed relationships slash fiancés. And there's a scene in a parking lot where they're the main character, the reporter, and then Julia Roberts, Maggie are having an argument. And he goes, you're so lost. You don't even know what kind of eggs you like. And she's like, no, that's just called changing my mind. And he goes, no, that's called not having a mind of your own. And that's such a powerful scene because what he realized when interviewing all her ex-partners is he would ask them one simple question. What kind of eggs does Maggie like? And they all gave different answers. And they all said, oh, she likes the eggs exactly like I do. Scrambled exactly like I do, sunny side up. So she was molding herself to fit each relationship. She was hiking, she was doing whatever was needed. And this is not uncommon. This happens all the time. But this tiny little thing that he picked up unraveled her. And then there's a scene a couple of minutes later where she's at home. She made a dozen eggs and she's trying them to try to figure out what she likes. And that's kind of how I see the creation of self and the facing of self. Sometimes you just got to try the eggs. (laughs) Sometimes you got to put it on the table and figure it out what works for you. And you know what? Maybe she'll walk away being like, I really like scrambled eggs. That doesn't mean that now she will forever like scrambled eggs. It means in that moment, they're her favorite eggs. And she should go back to that table over and over and over again and make sure they're still her favorite eggs before she overcommits to this narrative and starts eating eggs she doesn't even like 10 years from now. And I think that that's such an important kind of an analogy or metaphor for this because that's what it is. It's constantly putting it all on the table, tasting it, seeing what works, what doesn't, and, and almost being a bit playful about it. Because there isn't this big right or wrong when it comes to the authentic self. And I think that we, we can just kind of enjoy the process. So that's one thing I just wanted to share when it, when it comes to it. And another practical tip is, I think when I talk about the disconnection of self, I talk about being disconnected from your emotions, your body, and your mind. And what I like to ask people to do is put them in a hierarchy. Which one are you most disconnected from? So for me, if I had to look back, it'd probably be like a body at the top, emotions, the mind. My mind and I always kind of, we stayed 
relatively close. So I over-rationalized things and over-analyzed things and that went to my benefit and not to my be- Like, you know, it, it hurt me as much as it helped me. And look where the biggest disconnect is and start from there. Because I think if you're noticing that you are a stranger to yourself, that you feel really disconnected, really empty, really fragmented, that you are doing things and then you're looking at yourself and going, I have no idea why I did this. Who is this person that just did this? I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You're like, what the hell? Like, why would I do this? And there is this frustration. And so I think if you're experiencing that, figure out where the biggest disconnect is and maybe start to get some closeness, start to date that part of you, start to investigate, to observe. I mean, there, as you said, there's so many tips in the book, but I would just pick one area and then dive into it rather than trying to do all three at once, because then it feels really overwhelming and tedious. And so where's your biggest disconnect? I think that's an important question to ask. Those are both really, really good. Appreciate those answers. Love the the runaway bride shout out as well. I'm going to kind of ask the question, but with a slightly different lens over it. Before we we started the recording, we're all just kind of chatting about traveling and whatnot. You've traveled extensively. You've lived kind of as a nomad for quite a while now. You've been around a lot. You've also, so you've got that cultural lens. You've also got this existential lens, right? Among everything else you're interested in or thinking about or integrating into your work, right? And I'm just curious if you were to sort of break down some of like the simplest sort of behaviors or presences or ingredients that you see around the world that seem to suggest people are living good lives, they've got that sense of self, they're somewhat integrated, authentic, just like real simple stuff. What do you see around different parts of the world across cultures that sort of, I don't know, I guess kind of confirmation bias for for your existential view of the world as well? As in they're living like the positive spin on it. Like I noticed that they're embodying themselves and living the life they want. I think a huge one that comes through is community in terms of cultures and individuals who have a sense of, and it doesn't have to be a huge community, but they, they have a tight community generally tend to, and this is so hard to say because I feel like there's certain cultures and I won't call them out where everything's about a sense of belonging and you're doing everything you can to try to fit into a mold, especially around social media right now. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about communities that are, are genuinely founded on connection and the value of community. I'm thinking about Italians at their big t- dinner tables for four hours where you're really sharing. I'm talking about living in Jordan and having meals with friends and cooking together. And I I find that individuals who are in a community where they feel like they can be fully themselves and they can connect and talk about really important values. It's fascinating. It's not that we're just chatting about Instagram. People are talking about things they care about. They're talking about religion. They're talking about politics. They're talking about the things that have hurt them. And so I find the individuals who are in those types of communities generally have a stronger sense of self which makes sense because the community you're a part of also shapes your sense of self. So that's one thing. I mean, confidence would be an obvious one. <laughs> I think confidence is such an attractive thing. And I find that individuals who take responsibility for their life, who are not scared to make a mistake and who call themselves out, there's a certain amount of confidence that comes into all of that or that is built through that. And that's kind of a thread that I see worldwide. And I, and I think it's incredibly great. I don't know. I'm I'm sure I'm missing more. No, it's helpful. Yeah. 
And you, you brought it up a couple of times, but this like openness or optimism or kind of like willingness to have a go or make changes or, or things can improve. But I figured community might be where you go. And as soon as you said it, just looking at your notes from earlier, I could see like clear connections with meaning, with responsibility, with relationship building. You, you know, you talked about how like there's all sorts of different philosophies about how we form kind of this narrative sense of self as well. So it makes a lot of sense. They both make a lot of sense. I was just kind of curious if we talk a lot on the show about flourishing, positive psychology, but candidly, like a, t- a lot of the research, I'm sure you well know, is done on like weird populations, which I think is limiting in a lot of ways. And so you've talked a lot about lived experience, but you come at it from an academic viewpoint. I was just curious how the two kind of married in your world. That's why I loved studying the lived experience. It's it's so personal. And I think, I mean, all the things, I mean, your summary was better than the way that I articulated what I found, but that's exactly <laughs> it. I also Don't feel that people that. Who, who have a sense of humor, I mean, that's like a huge one. People who have a sense of humor tend to be able to face things, difficult things and talk about those things. And I, I think understanding, I had my therapist once tell me, and I was so pissed off when she first said it, But she was like, until you find beauty in suffering, you're going to suffer a lot more. (laughs) As in like your suffering is going to feel a lot heavier. And I was like, wow, that's dismissive. (laughs) She was right. (laughs) If human existence is also partly suffering, unless you find some intrigue or beauty in it, you're saying that 30%, 50%, or if you're really unlucky, 80% of your existence is something you don't want to touch, talk about, enjoy at all in any capacity. And so I thought that was a really interesting thing that kind of twisted my brain. And maybe she said it because she understood my propensity towards the existential worldview. But I think that individuals who can find some form or meaning, and this is very Frankel, Victor Frankel, meaning in their suffering, genuinely have more fulfilling lives. And, you know, you can look at the Balkans, and this is so clear to me when I go back, you can tell who found meaning in their suffering or despite their suffering, depending if you're into Victor Frankel or Alfred Langley. So despite or because whatever, and how they live their lives versus people who can't find any meaning in their experiences. And the psyche and the trauma that comes with something like that and the helplessness that is reinforced through that is really, really intense. And I have never, and I don't like to speak about cultures that I'm not a part of in terms of, I I don't have the right to summarize or or say anything, but in the Balkans, I feel like I do. (laughs) And it's, it's also one of the most prevalent, like it's so salient. Like it slaps me in the face every time I land there from songs they listen to, to how they talk about their daily lives. It really boils down to, do they find any meaning in their in their existence or not. And they have been through a lot. So I understand it's sometimes hard, but that's a huge one. That is interesting that you kind of went that route. Cause we had early on in the show, we had on Matthew Lee, formerly from the human flourishing program at Harvard and David Johnson at, at Oxford. And we asked him a somewhat similar question about some of the research. And David talked about kind of like setting up an, an X and Y axis. And on one of these axis, you sort of have on one end of the spectrum meaning and on the other end, happiness. And he was using those loosely so like you can get into all the conceptual arguments. But it was kind of like <laughs> meaning can have a lot of like suffering, difficulty, challenge. Happiness is kind of that unbridled joy. And then the other axis, he 
kind of juxtaposed individualism and communitarianism, right? And I heard, I think, some of those elements in the way you described it. And again, I'm, you know, there's only so many cultures I'm a part of, but I am married into Vietnamese culture, Vietnamese American. It's very similar in the way that they talk about it, interact, communicate with each other, organize events. I mean, everything. Very, very different. But I think it, it often fits, I think, in those quadrants. I don't know how that lands with you. Yeah, for sure. I find it's so interesting that meaning and happiness are on the opposite spectrum, which I kind of love, <laughs> but I'm not sure I fully agree with. So I'd have to sit with that. I, I think our cultural obsession with happiness is unhealthy. I don't think that that should be the drive for everything we do. And I don't think happiness is a permanent state. It's not. But I do think happiness is important and we should have moments of happiness. I think meaning is more substantial. This is super biased, obviously, with my existential sort of. But I, I find that they're interesting because I think sometimes they are on the opposite spectrum. Sometimes I think people just find ways to get the endorphins going, get the dopamine going, and they feel happy. And then they will realize after that wears off that they have a meaningless existence. And so I don't think they always have to be in the opposite spectrum. But I do see this a lot where people who try to chase that feeling of happiness and joy, and then realize that in that chase, they actually have created a meaningless existence. And then there's people who get sucked in the Pain is so meaningful that they feel it's almost disrespectful or shy away from actually feeling the joy. I don't think that's healthy either. So I'd like them to meet somewhere in the middle where you have a meaningful life with moments of happiness. That would, I think, be great. It's a both end. Yeah, it's both end. Yeah, we're big fans of a lot of this stuff. But Todd Cashin at George Mason, like psychological richness, right? Not just constant pleasantness or unpleasant. Yeah, see, I thought you might like that term. We, I really vibe with that as well. But experience it all. Which is a good transition, John and I were just talking about where to go next, but like it sounds a lot like you have to be flexible psychologically, cognitively, and like agile emotionally to do those sorts of things, right? So I'm curious, you know, how you, if at all, you you work with clients on those sorts of skills. Yeah, I think especially now I'm thinking about the other axes of like individualism and what was the term they used? Communitarian. Yeah. I think dismantling some of the beliefs around living the right or the wrong way is really important when it comes to agility, be it emotionally or psychologically. I think also dismantling the belief that things can be categorized and that it's this or that. All of these things have to be dismantled because it's a lot of ands in life and it's a lot of grays in life. And I think just teaching clients that there's nothing threatening about and not neatly fitting into the box and maybe even finding moments of joy and happiness and freedom in the fact that he doesn't. And I think a lot of us want safety. I think safety is a big reason why we become psychologically rigid in terms of we think this will keep us safe. This has worked once and that's what it is. And so trying to help the client build inner safety as a foundation makes them a lot more agile and flexible when it comes to them participating in the world. But if you're trying to build that safety outside of yourself, that's when it becomes really, really incredibly scary and calculated. And then a lot of the times it doesn't serve the client. So inner safety isn't psychological safety, right? It's, it's like having a sense of inner peace. 
it's all of it. I think how I would categorize inner safety is the fact that no matter what happens, you know that you have your back, that you'll be able to handle it, that at the end of the day, you are going to wake up and you're going to do what needs to be done. And it's not going to necessarily be pleasant, but it's like standing behind yourself. It's that sensation of like, I'm safe because I know that even if the worst things happened, I would show up for myself and I can trust myself. And I have built rapport with myself and I understand myself. So you can't have safety with someone you don't understand. Usually you can't have safety with someone you don't trust. So I think there's a lot of building there of like, can you really have inner safety if you don't know who you are? (laughs) Can you really have inner safety if you keep making the same mistake over and over again? So it is a relationship. And I think when we think about the self, it's like, we need to think of it not as a static thing, but a fluid thing. And as a relationship, like you would have with absolutely anybody else that takes time to build. And then when you make a mistake, you're going to have to repair it. It's not like, well, it's me. That's a, you have to intentionally repair the hurt that has happened. And so I think the sooner we start to take this relationship and apply literally every relationship tip you've ever heard <laughs> about dating or marriage to yourself, we're going to struggle. I think uh, sometimes looking at it like that is helpful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I see. So we'll start to wrap soon. I just want to spell out something for listeners. We've used many complex terms today, hermeneutic phenomenology, existentialism, and so on. We won't spell all these out here, but one I think we should spell it is Nick mentioned weird populations. By that, he meant the acronym Western Educated Industrialized Rich and Democratic. He didn't mean literally weird populations. We should clarify that for listeners there. They might be weird. That's it's They're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Love that. Fair point. So this might kind of capture a lot of the themes we've we've talked about today, but a, a kind of a key theme of your book is recommending that readers engage in a journey or in a process of self-reflection to build the skills to improve their well-being. So as kind of perhaps a, a final question, what's a kind of a key step or some key steps listeners can take to build their own well-being through self-reflection? I think journaling is a great one. I think why reflection leads to well-being is because when you know the person you're trying to take care of, you will better take care of them. It's like trying to surprise your girlfriend of one week. It's kind of hard. You might not know much about her. And then after you've been married, I'm really genuinely hoping (laughs) that you'll be able to take care of her more or do things that will surprise her more or she'll enjoy more because you will just know her so much more. And that's why I think reflection leads to that well-being is identifying our needs and preferences and knowing what makes us tick. And the question I absolutely love, and it's a hard question, is journaling You know, for a month straight one single question, which is, what did I learn about myself today? It sounds really easy, but that question is impossible to answer if you didn't observe yourself throughout the day. Mm, So end of the day for a month, you recommend doing that? Yeah, that's what I did. I loved it. And some days I'd be like, I learned nothing. I'd be like, Sarah, you didn't observe. You didn't look closely enough. Like some days you'll be like, it reinforces this belief I had about myself or yes, okay, it is proving that I am indeed <laughs> this person. And sometimes it'll be brand new things of like, wow, I my body language changed when this person walked in. Oh, wow, my emotions, I tend to swing from sad 
to anger before I ever reach happiness. Like it can get nuanced. And sometimes it can be like, Hey, I don't like dogs. Like, you know, (laughs) I love dogs, but it can, it can be (laughs) something super nuanced or something really broad. And I think this is such a great way to start that observation journey, non-judgmental, curious approach that we all need in order to get close to ourselves No one on a first date assumes they know everything about the person. That would be absurd. There's curiosity, openness, questions, and that's what we need as well at the very start. Love that. Love it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well said. The one practical thing I said. (laughs) Well, no, no, you said a bunch of practical things, but I love the level of granularity that practical thing went into, right? You've given a bunch of good tips already, but like you said, not as easy task, but a relatively simple prompt that's easy to remember and just do it on repeat, right? Absolutely. I like that a lot. I might try it myself. So Sarah, this is this has been really, really awesome. Really appreciate the time. We know you're wildly busy. You got a lot of different things going including the new book. Tell the audience a little bit about the book and where they can find you and engage with you. Sure. So my book is on self-loss. It helps individuals figure out who they are and why we're here. And you can buy it anywhere books are sold. I think it's translated into 16 languages at this point. So hopefully available worldwide. And I'm most active on Instagram under millennial.therapist. I also do have two Substack newsletters. One is for psychology. It's called Notes from My Phone. The other one's actually more about existentialism, starting a really nerdy community called Phenomenological Society. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> where I, if you're interested in existentialism, my good friend and I are just kind of introducing people to some arguments and concepts and just having discussions with like-minded people. So those are two kind of more long formatty offerings that I have besides the book. Super cool. We'll put links to all of that in the show notes, direct people to them. But Sarah, really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Flourish FM. We hope you enjoyed the content. Please be sure to leave us a five-star review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast and on all major social media platforms. And if you visit our website, flourishfmpodcast.com, you can sign up to our newsletter. We send out a weekly newsletter. First newsletter of every month, we share a long-form blog. And every newsletter, every week, we share highlights from our previous episodes. Please hit subscribe on our website.